Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be studying the Eightfold Path, specifically the first two steps on the Eightfold Path. This is part one of a three-part series where we're going to be diving into detail about the Eightfold Path as a preview and overview of the group learning program, which is a seven-month program that progresses you in learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings in order to attain enlightenment on the path to enlightenment. This path to enlightenment leads to a mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. It means that it no longer experiences any discontent feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, all of these discontent feelings are completely eliminated from the mind. And today, as part of today's class, we're going to be establishing what we call right view and talking about right intention in order to help get you started on this journey to enlightenment. In this part of the Eightfold Path, we segment into what's called wisdom. So I'd like to welcome you and please that you're here Throughout the course, throughout today's class, we're going to be accepting questions in Facebook, YouTube, and our Zoom classroom. All you need to do is type your question into the comment section, and one of our moderators, either James or Manal, will ensure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you'll be able to raise your hand electronically and ask your question or any follow-up questions directly. So thank you for coming. Thank you for attending and being interested in learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings. Let's go ahead and get started with the class and sharing what it is that we're going to be discussing. Over the course of the next three Sundays, we're going to be exploring in detail the entire Eightfold Path. This Eightfold Path starts with right view in right intention. These are the first two steps. And here, as you can see from what I'm displaying on the screen, that this eightfold path goes through eight steps. And it starts with right view, goes to right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And this is the path to enlightenment. This is the core teaching of Gautama Buddha. Everything that he taught connects back into this in one way or another. And in this Eightfold Path, it's important that you learn each individual step. And the way that this path is laid out is you don't learn one step before you move into the next and then the next and then the next. You actually learn all of them at one time. 
and then you kind of dial in each one of these to bring them into the middle where you're able to practice them in your daily life. Because it's through practicing each one of these individually all at once that assemble into your life practice. This is your life practice. This is the path that leads to the elimination of discontentedness. And we segment it into these three categories of wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. And as we progress in this three-part series, we will be covering each of those three sections. Today, wisdom, which is right view, right intention. Next Sunday, right speech, right action, right livelihood, which is the moral conduct. And then the mental discipline will be covered in the following Sunday, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And over the course of the next three weeks, you're going to get a real nice preview of what this whole path looks like. And then we're going to start eventually on chapter one of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, where we'll then progress slowly through all the various teachings that you're going to need to understand and practice on this path to enlightenment. But they all connect into this one. The very last Sunday of this month, we're going to be discussing the stages of enlightenment because there's four stages of enlightenment. We're going to be discussing what's called the 10 fetters because those are the 10 things that need to be eliminated from the mind in order to attain enlightenment. And then we're going to discuss the seven factors of enlightenment, which are tools or aspects of practice that will help improve the quality of the mind and kind of refine it and kind of bring it to the middle. So this is what's going to be taught over the next four Sundays before we actually start with chapter one in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And moving to the next slide, what I've got there is just to kind of show you this three-part series that I just laid out for you about how we're going to be covering this for each Sunday, part one, part two, and part three. And typically, this is all covered in just one class. So I thought that rather than just do like I've done in the past, that I would try something new where we really kind of spend a lot of time over the three different classes where we'll be able to dive into each part of the Eightfold Path in more detail. And then in the book, when we get to chapter five, which is the Eightfold Path, we'll still spend that day discussing it because you really can't talk about the Eightfold Path enough. You really can't learn about it too much. There's no such thing as learning about the Eightfold Path too much because you need to have a real refined understanding of the Eightfold Path intellectually and you need to reflect on those teachings and you need to apply them in your daily life so that you can see that they actually work. And by doing this, you will acquire wisdom. And this wisdom will gradually, slowly improve the condition of the mind. None of these teachings are based on belief. There's nothing here that Gautama Buddha or myself will ever say, just believe me. What you're going to need to do is intellectually learn the teachings, bringing that in through the book, the audio book, these classes, personal guidance, other ways of learning with the resources that I'm providing, bring in the teachings intellectually, reflect on them and help to see that they're actually true, 
which we're actually going to be doing as part of our class today, doing helping you to see how to actually reflect on these teachings. And then you need to move them into practice, which is going to change the condition of the mind. Because it's one thing to know the teachings intellectually and kind of know the right answer, so to speak. But it's a whole other thing to actually practice the teachings through your conduct and through your daily life or through your life practice. There's plenty of people in the world that intellectually know the teachings of the Buddha, but they haven't moved them into practice yet to actually change the condition of the mind. And that's where you experience enlightenment. The intellectual learning and being able to intellectually describe the teachings isn't enlightenment. That's just the intellectual learning. A lot of times scholars or historians will have a lot of intellectual knowledge around the teachings of the Buddha, but it's not until you move them into practice that you really deepen your understanding of the teachings because you see how they work in daily life, but also moving them into practice, you'll see how it changes the condition of the mind and how the mind gains more and more wisdom. And now the mind starts functioning in the world very differently than it did previously. So this is what we'll be doing over the next three weeks. So starting off with right view, let's study the words of the Buddha, because it's important since we're going to take this deeper exploration, this deeper dive into the Eightfold Path, that we bring in some of the Buddha's words so that you can see what I'm actually teaching is directly from what Gautama Buddha is teaching. Because while you shouldn't have any belief about anything in these teachings, you also shouldn't believe that what I'm teaching you is actually what the Buddha actually taught. So that's why at certain points in time in this program, I will actually bring the actual words of the Buddha. And you can see these here. You can see them on the internet. You can see them in other books. These are the words of the Buddha about what he was actually teaching. So I'm going to show you his words first, and then I'm going to expand upon it and explain it in a way that you can directly apply it in your life. When the Buddha was teaching the Eightfold Path, he was asked and he explained what is right view, this first step of the Eightfold Path. And here you can see his words. And what bhikkhus? Bhikkhus are the male ordained practitioners. So in what bhikkhus, or you can think of that as students, right? In what students is right view? It is bhikkhus, the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, and the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is called right view. So what he's pointing to here is what we call the Four Noble Truths. This is chapter four in the book that I wrote. He's pointing to in his Eightfold Path back to the Four Noble Truths, which is very first discourse. This is a common thing in Gautama Buddha's teachings where his teachings are kind of interlinked and they're syncing up together. Where the Eightfold Path is the core teaching, it is the path to enlightenment, there's other teachings that hang off of this, like the Three Universal Truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Five Precepts, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the teachings of meditation. All these other teachings are actually connecting into the Eightfold Path. 
So here, when he's talking about right view as part of the full path, he's pointing back to the Four Noble Truths and saying that is right view. So now, what did he teach as part of the Four Noble Truths? And, and I'm truncating this because he taught a lot about the Four Noble Truths, but I'm just kind of making it really small for you. I've got the entire teachings in this book in chapter four that you can see exactly what Gautama Buddha taught in long form about the Eightfold Path in chapter five. And I've got in this book in long form in chapter four, what did he teach in terms of the Four Noble Truths? But here in class, I'm just kind of truncating it so you can see we're headed in the direction of Gautama Buddha's teachings by what it is that I'm going to share with you. So when he's pointing back to right view and pointing back to the Four Noble Truths as part of right view, here's what the Four Noble Truths starts out with. Bhikkhus, there are these Four Noble Truths. What for? The Noble Truth of Discontentedness. The Noble Truth of the Cause of Discontentedness. The Noble Truth of the Elimination of Discontentedness. The Noble Truth of the Way Leading to the Elimination of Discontentedness. Okay, so here he's pointing back in his Eightfold Path about right view, and he's saying in order to start this path, essentially, you need to establish right view. Okay, the next thing to do in order to kind of build right view and establish right view is to understand the three universal truths. The three universal truths is kind of almost like a prerequisite in order to understand the Four Noble Truths. Without understanding the three universal truths and seeing that they are in fact truth, you wouldn't be able to understand the Four Noble Truths. And we call these truths because they're universally true. They're universally true because I can teach these to you. And then independently on your own, you can reflect and observe in the world whether it's true or not. It's not based on belief. So as I teach you here, I'm going to describe what impermanence is, and then I'm going to ask you some questions for you to reflect on your own to be able to see whether this is true or not. Because Gautama Buddha was teaching the natural laws of existence, these natural laws of existence are here in Thailand, they're in America, they're in South Africa, they're in South America, they're in the UK, they're in Australia, Japan. It's basically the universal truths of what we all experience in the world. And the reason why the mind is in the unenlightened state is because it doesn't understand these natural laws of existence. The mind doesn't understand the things like three universal truths and four noble truths. It doesn't understand these truths. When you were a child, you didn't understand the natural law of gravity either. And that's why life was quite difficult for you. You would stand up, fall down and hurt yourself. You would put your toys in certain places, they would fall down and break. You would try to run and you trip over your feet and you'd fall down and hurt yourself and you cry because you didn't understand this natural law of gravity. More and more, over many years, you gradually learned about this natural law of gravity. And when you got the wisdom of this natural law of gravity, then you were able to function in the world very differently than you did when you were two, three, four, five years old. But it took you a gradual learning in order to build that wisdom to understand this natural law of gravity. Well, what you're doing with the natural laws of existence from Gautama Buddha 
is exactly the same thing. You're unaware of these natural laws. And that's why you've kind of struggled and had challenges in your life in terms of anger and frustration and irritation and relationships became difficult, whether it was with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or your parents or your siblings or a neighbor. You've had challenges and struggles because you haven't understood these natural laws. And the more you understand these natural laws, just like with the natural law of gravity, when you gain that wisdom, now the mind's going to function in the world much differently than it did before when you didn't know these, when the mind was unknowing of true reality. But the only way to get to that wisdom is for you to not believe anything that I say is that you need to learn and reflect on it and then practice it to see that it's true. And then you'll know that this is true, just like Gautama Buddha, just like me, just like other people, know that these things are true and you will acquire wisdom and the mind will gradually awaken about these natural laws of existence. So let's start that with this very first universal truth I will teach it to you and then I will show you how to independently determine that it's indeed truth. The first universal truth we call impermanence. Essentially, what this teaches is that everything is constantly changing in the world, that there is no permanent state. So material objects, possessions, relationships, thoughts, ideas, states of mind, everything is constantly changing. What the Buddha talked about is he talked about all conditioned thoughts are impermanent, which we can talk about what that is if anybody has questions on that. Essentially, your sadness is based on some condition. It will arise and then it will cease to exist. The happiness in the mind, it is based on some condition. It will arise in the mind and then it will cease to exist. The loneliness or boredom, the shyness, it will arise and then it will cease to exist. This is impermanence. All that arises will cease to exist. There's no steady, constant, fixed state other than enlightenment. Once you attain enlightenment, this is an unconditioned mind. You're stripping away the conditions that are causing all of these temporary feelings and once you do the mind will be inwardly peaceful calm serene and content with joy permanently so this enlightened mind once you attain all this wisdom it will be a permanent mental state and the natural laws of existence themselves are permanent that they're not changing that's why what Gautama Buddha taught 2500 years ago And what we're teaching today, it's the same natural laws. His teachings are timeless because he was teaching about the natural laws. And that's why what he taught 2,500 years ago to awaken the mind based on the natural laws of existence, because they're universally true, they're also true today. So now that you understand impermanence, at least superficially, that whatever arises is going to cease to exist. There's constant change. You don't believe this. What you do is you reflect on it and you start asking questions to the mind about whether or not this is true or not. So I will ask you some questions to determine if this is true. 
if you can come up with anything that is permanent, then you've essentially disproven the Buddha and this isn't a universal truth. So what you do is you start searching in the world for something that's permanent. Is the physical body permanent? Your physical body, the one that you're inhabiting right now, is this permanent? Has it been the same size, the same shape, the same color, and has it changed at all over the course of your life? Of course, the answer is no. It's been constantly changing. What about your hair? Does your hair change? Is it the same length, the same color, the same texture? No, it's constantly changing. What about your fingernails, right? Those are constantly growing. What about things that you've seen built in the world, like a sidewalk or a street when you walk out into the world? Do people build sidewalks and then they stay that way permanently? Or do they get cracks in them? Do they change colors? Do they have to be maintained and upgraded? Right? They have to be upgraded, right? Because they're constantly changing. It's not permanent. What about your relationships? Have you had the same relationships in terms of friends or boyfriends, girlfriends, teachers, things like this? Have these relationships been permanent in your life? The answer is no. What about your job? Have you had the same job your entire life? The answer is no. You've had different jobs. Or what about your income? Have you had different incomes? Has your income been changing, going up and down throughout your life? The answer is yes, it has been. So we could keep on going with all these different questions, but you've got to determine the truth for yourself. You, if you're not yet convinced that everything is impermanent, then you've got to go out into the world and look for something that's permanent and see if you can find something that's permanent right is the tree permanent is the flowers permanent is the fence permanent that gets painted does it stay permanently painted and beautiful or does it have to be repainted every so often you've got to look around and decide what is permanent and what you will most likely come back with is nothing's permanent but if you think something's permanent tell me raise your hand ask a question on facebook or youtube or in the zoom classroom and say hey i think this is permanent and then we can talk about that so that you can get clarification on that. So does anybody have anything that they feel is permanent that they would like to talk about on Zoom or YouTube or Facebook? Go ahead and submit that and our moderators will see it and we can talk about it. So just pause for a second to see if we have anything that comes in, James or Manal. It looks like we have nothing at this time. Okay. So if you guys are reflecting over the next few days and you go out in the world and you feel like you found something that's permanent, post that in the Facebook group or private message me, right? And we can talk about it and be sure that you are seeing this, right? The second universal truth is called discontentedness. A lot of people in the Buddhist community will call this suffering. And I'll explain why I don't use that word but let's first talk about what it is, and then you'll understand why. What discontentedness is, is it's a state of mind where the mind is discontent. It's a mental state. And I call this discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. This mental state of discontent, discontented, or discontentedness comes about because of 
the three feelings that can potentially be in the mind at any one given time. These three feelings are either painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Examples of painful feelings are things like sadness, depression, anger, hatred, ill will, guilt, shame, fear, anxiety, stress, frustration, annoyance, irritation. All of these are very painful to be experienced in the mind. And these feelings feel very painful in the mind and and the mind doesn't like them. Then there's certain pleasant feelings that the mind experiences. Happiness, excitement, elation. These are very pleasant for the mind to experience. Then there's neither painful nor pleasant. I describe this as boredom, loneliness, melancholy, shyness, kind of a displeased, uncomfortable, unsatisfied mind. Now, some people have told me, like, David, I consider boredom and loneliness to be quite painful. Well, if that's where you would consider that to be, that's fine. You can put those in the painful category. It's not about how do you necessarily categorize these individual aspects of the feelings. What the Buddha taught was there's painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And these feelings are impermanent. The mind goes from sadness to anger, to happiness, to boredom, to loneliness, to guilt, to shame, to excitement. And there might be periods in there where the mind's kind of calm or peaceful, but the mind basically jumps around. This is what the unenlightened mind does. It jumps around through these three feelings, painful, pleasant, and neither painful nor pleasant. Now, the way that you practice this and you reflect on it to see if it's true or not is you say, okay, Mr. Gautama Buddha, you say that there's a painful feelings, there's pleasant feelings, and there's feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. If the Buddha is correct, and this is a universal truth, then that means he's describing all the various feelings that your mind experiences And he's categorizing them into these three categories, painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant. If you can come up with one feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three categories, then you've disproven the Buddha. So this is the way for you to prove to yourself whether the Buddhist teachings are true and gain wisdom is try to disprove the Buddha. Because if you can come up with a feeling that doesn't map into one of these three, then you've disproven the Buddha and this is not a universal truth. So what you should be thinking about right now is what feelings have you had, what feelings have you experienced, and how do they map into these three? And the way that the Buddha oftentimes teaches is he teaches things like painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and then he has this catch-all, which is neither painful nor pleasant. So with those three, the Buddha has covered all three possible scenarios of where feelings might fit in the mind. This is discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. When you look at the Buddhist teachings online or in books or with some other teachers, they may use the word suffering here. They may say that the Buddha taught to eliminate suffering. I would say 
that he taught to eliminate discontentedness because he taught to eliminate these three feelings, painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant. He didn't teach to eliminate suffering. I mean, he did, but that's not the entire teaching because when you're happy, excited or elated, you wouldn't say you were suffering. I don't think, at least I wouldn't have. And if you're shy or you're just uncomfortable or the mind is unsatisfied, you wouldn't say you were suffering. So this word suffering describes painful feelings, but it doesn't describe pleasant feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So if we continue to use the language that's been used in the past to describe that Gautama Buddha was teaching to eliminate suffering, and this is the translation that we've gotten in English language from the various translators, then we're only looking at 33% of what it is that the Buddha was teaching, the painful feelings. That means we're missing about 66% of his teachings. The primary core teaching of what he's teaching is how to eliminate this discontent mind and get to enlightenment, which is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So using the word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness will bring your mind more closely to what it is that the Buddha was teaching to eliminate from the mind is these conditioned, painful feelings, these conditioned, pleasant feelings, these conditioned, neither painful nor pleasant feelings. Because when the mind experiences these feelings based on some condition, then that means that they're impermanent. So for example, if you get a new car and you become very happy because of the new car, when that new car gets a scratch or gets in an accident or a flat tire because of impermanence, because that car is impermanent, that means that happiness, those pleasant feelings that you have associated with this new car, those pleasant feelings are going to subside. They're going to fade away. And when they do, that means the mind's going to move to sadness or anger or frustration. Because the pleasant feelings are based on some condition, I got a new car. I got a new girlfriend, a new boyfriend. I got a new pair of shoes. I got a new job. I got a raise. None of these things are permanent. They're all impermanent. And because the mind is latching on to these conditions in order to acquire these pleasant feelings, that means eventually the mind is then going to revert to painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So what the Buddha is teaching is to eliminate the mind's outward searching for satisfaction for pleasant feelings in order to produce happiness, excitement, elation, etc., these pleasant feelings, so that when those conditions are gone, the mind doesn't swing back to painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. When the mind becomes enlightened gradually through training, it will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. There's this unconditioned joy. The mind is always joyful. It's not based on any external conditions. You wake up in the morning, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You go to sleep, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. 
all day long, the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The mind is unshakable because it's liberated from these conditions where the mind is outwardly searching for satisfaction based on these external conditions. Some people will describe enlightenment, which we're going to talk about in four weeks, they will describe it as ultimate happiness. I don't describe it that way because happiness is a conditioned feeling. It's based on some condition and it's temporary. Enlightenment is not based on any conditions. It's unconditioned and therefore it's permanent. Because the mind is inwardly satisfied, it can be permanent because it's not basing its feelings in the mind on these external conditions that are impermanent. So this is discontentedness, painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And as we go in our talk today, I'm going to explain what's causing these feelings and why the mind is experiencing these. Because in order to eliminate these feelings, you've got to understand what's causing them. And don't be concerned about eliminating happiness, excitement, and elation, because I know that's part of life that you enjoy right now. But that's all based on conditions, and it's temporary. What you're moving to in enlightenment is this joyful mental state that's permanent. And the way that you can think about this conditioned happiness versus this unconditioned joy is something like conditional love or conditioned love. Some people say they love you, but they have certain conditions that have to be met in order for them to continue to love you or in order for them to say that they love you. They have certain things that they say, okay, if you meet these criteria, I love you. And then when you stop meeting those criteria, they will say, I don't love you anymore. But that's not true love, which we're going to get to in chapter 14. This is conditional love. This is not true love. This is actually being selfish and saying, I'm only going to love you if you meet my selfish conditions. So conditioned happiness is the same way. The mind says, I'm only going to be happy if you meet these conditions. What? unconditional love is, is I love you. I would like to see you be well. I would like to see you be peaceful. There's no condition that you have to meet in order for me to have that genuine feeling towards you. I'm interested in your well-being. I'm interested in your peacefulness. I'm interested in seeing you be well. It's unconditioned love. So ask yourself, would you rather have this conditioned love where people are requiring things of you before they will love you? Or would you rather have this unconditional love where people just love you and just let you be and do whatever you feel is best for your life? Well, of course, you would rather have this unconditional love. So the same thing is that this conditional happiness is actually dragging you down where your mind's constantly chasing it, these conditions, where unconditioned joy is the mind will just always be joyful without any conditions. Let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on discontentedness, what it is, what the three feelings are, or anything that might need to be clarified before we move on to the third universal truth. So David, is it fair to say that because we feel pleasant feelings, 
were liable to feel painful feelings due to the unconditioned mind. Because of the conditioned mind, the mind is lurching and longing, which we're going to talk about next in the Four Noble Truths, this craving, desire, attachment, the mind has this longing for pleasant feelings. And the mind thinks because of this unknowing of true reality, because it doesn't have the wisdom that it needs, the mind thinks if it just gets that next new car, or if it just gets that new job, or if it just gets one more friend on Facebook, or if I just get a thousand friends on Facebook, if I just get 20 likes today, then my mind will be happy or excited. So the mind creates all these conditions where it's trying to create this conditional happiness and it thinks that's going to be ultimately fulfilling. But what the mind realizes eventually is that this is impermanent and the mind then cycles over to painful feelings and the mind becomes sad. So if you have the condition in your mind that if I log into Facebook and I have three private messages, my mind will be happy. And that's the condition that needs to be met. Well, when you log in and you see you only have one message, your mind's going to be sad. Or your mind's going to get so accustomed to those three messages being there that now it wants five or it wants eight. It's going to chase more and more and more just like it takes more and more alcohol to get drunk, it's going to take more and more messages for the mind to experience these pleasant feelings again. So if you're allowing the mind to create these conditions that are going to create happiness, excitement, and elation, then you're inviting in the painful feelings and neither painful nor pleasant. So what this life practice becomes is training the mind to no longer create these conditions in the mind to hinge its happiness on, to hinge its excitement on, to hinge its elation on. So you can learn this intellectually and everything I'm sharing with you can make complete total sense intellectually, but to actually do it and train the mind to do it consistently over a long period of time is a whole nother thing. But to answer your question directly, James, yes, the mind is setting up all these conditions. It's wanting these pleasant feelings. And if it gets them, if it gets its objects of its affection, if it gets those conditions met, then yeah, it's going to experience pleasant feelings and happiness, excitement, elation. But if it doesn't get those, and it can't get them permanently, it can't get the conditions met permanently because everything's impermanent, right? So if you allow the mind to set up these conditioned happiness and this conditioned excitement and elation, then when those conditions are met because of impermanence, it's going to experience either painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. It's just a matter of time. So in some sense, due to the law of impermanence, even when we experience pleasant feelings, there's perhaps an undercurrent of pain there because that condition is subject to and going to change. Yes, you've got to start seeing that conditioned happiness, excitement, elation as discontentedness. This is why I don't describe what the Buddha taught to eliminate as suffering, because you've got to eliminate that conditioned happiness, right? And, and the real problem for us in our culture is most people in the world are taught to chase happiness. Everybody wants to be happy. I just want to be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. And people chase after this material wealth 
if they think that that's what's going to create the happiness or they chase after having lots and lots of friends or they chase after having lots of clothes or shoes or something else. There's something that the mind identifies and it starts chasing after that. And when it gets to the end of that path, it realizes that, whoa, I'm still sad. I'm still angry. I'm still frustrated. And then it changes to something else and it chases that for a while. And then it chases this and it chases that. So if your mind, which the vast majority of the entire world has been programmed this way or conditioned this way, is to think that the goal of this life is to acquire happiness, permanent happiness. Well, permanent happiness isn't possible if it's based on conditions because happiness based on conditions, these conditions are impermanent. So that's why this unconditioned joy, or you can also think of it as unconditioned happiness. That's why that is going to be permanent because you've done the inner work to eliminate the mind's outward searching for satisfaction and latching onto conditions. And you train the mind to be inwardly content, inwardly peaceful, inwardly joyful. And that's what this whole path is about to eliminate these discontent feelings is eliminate the mind's outward searching for satisfaction through the senses and be inwardly content. We just had a question come in from Basim on Facebook. When eliminating discontentedness of the mind, it seems that it is a process of getting the mind back to its original nature. Does this mean that the origin of the mind is contentedness and for some reasons it turned to the discontented state? Some people do think of it this way. Some people, instead of thinking about you need to attain enlightenment, some people think of it as the mind's already enlightened, but you've got all this pollution that's disturbing that and it's inhibiting you from experiencing this content mind because this pollution is making its way into the mind and kind of confusing the mind and disturbing the mind. And when you purify the mind through training it and you clear out this pollution, then you can experience the natural mind, which is naturally enlightened, naturally peaceful, naturally content. So if that helps you to think of it that way, that you're not really trying to attain anything, it's actually already there. You've just got to get all the pollution out of the way so that you can experience it on a permanent basis. Okay, David, thanks. We have a couple other questions, but I think that it may be best to save them for the end. Okay, sounds good. Let's go to the third universal truth before we get into the Four Noble Truths. This third universal truth is something that doesn't necessarily always come readily understandable and readily understood the first time that we talk about it. So once I talk about this at a very basic level, if you walk away like, eh, I'm not so sure I understand that, that's completely normal. It takes many months and sometimes years for people to really learn and practice the teachings before this one kind of surfaces again, and we need to deal with it. We need to ensure that you understand it. So let me just explain this third universal truth a bit, and then we can help you to learn it later on the path once you've already developed understanding of more and more of the teachings. This third universal truth is called non-self. Some people call it not-self, okay? Essentially what the Buddha was teaching is that there is no permanent self. Let me explain this, okay? 
in the unenlightened mind, the unenlightened mind typically falsely identifies the physical body and or the mind as being the self. So if I ask, like, where is Teresa or where is Judith or where is Donnie? Like I might ask, you know, point to Teresa, point to Donnie, right? And most people will take their finger and they will point, right? Because the mind thinks that this physical body is you. This is the permanent self. This is the self-identity, the self-image. And you think of this physical body as being you. But what the Buddha says is this is actually not true. It's not the truth. The unenlightened mind thinks that this physical body and or this mind is you. But the real truth, the universal truth, is that there is no self. There is no permanently unchanging self. Because if you think back to when you were a child and how you looked at your self-image and your self-identity, your personality, and how people described you versus how you were in your teenage years, your young adult years and beyond, that's been constantly changing. If you look at how you viewed yourself over the course of your life, that's been constantly changing. So there is no permanent fixed self. There's no permanent you. But the unenlightened mind falsely thinks that this body and or this mind is you. And therefore, what happens is the mind then wants to protect and defend the self. So if somebody says, I don't like your hair or your hair looks different today or those glasses look interesting on you. Or is that a new shirt? You know, you might read into that and become somewhat defensive. And now you become angry or frustrated or annoyed with this person because you're trying to defend this personal image or this personal identity because the mind is holding on to the concept of a permanent self. But that has to be eradicated from the mind it has to be dissolved in order for the mind to be peaceful. Because as long as the mind's carrying around the permanent self and it's defensive of the self-image and the self-identity, then it's never going to be at rest because it's kind of looking out for when is the next person going to damage my reputation, gossip about me, say something I don't like. When is the next person going to come in about this physical body or the clothes or what have you, my jewelry. And when am I going to hear that? And when I do, the mind's not going to like it and the mind's going to get upset, right? Because somebody else said something or did something that was displeasing to the mind. Or for example, if somebody says, you have ego, then right away the mind's going to want to defend and say, no, 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 I don't have ego, right? It's going to want to push it away, right? So we can explore this topic or we will, we'll need to explore this topic more and more over this program. So four weeks from now, we're going to be talking about it. And then about three or four weeks from then, we're going to be talking about it. We're going to be talking about it throughout. But this is just kind of an introduction to help you understand that right now, the unenlightened mind is holding on 
to the concept of a permanent self. And this is getting in the way of you being able to realize complete peacefulness because the mind is always defending itself. This is something we call realizing non-self. Realizing non-self is to dissolve the concept of the self in the unenlightened mind. And that takes many months and sometimes years for that to happen. You have to do all this kind of groundwork in learning the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, all the other teachings. You need to do a lot of meditation to kind of soften up the mind and get it to a point where it has enough wisdom and it's willing to let go of this self. And that often takes you know, many months and sometimes a few years before the mind's willing to let it go. And you're going to need to build up enough wisdom on all of these other teachings before the mind's ready to let it go. And you need to build up enough training with meditation before the mind's going to be ready to let it go. But this is just kind of an introduction and heads up that the mind is holding on to this permanent self. It thinks there's a permanent self, but it's actually not true reality. The real truth is there is no self. Because if you point and I say, where's David? Or you asked me, where's David? If I pointed, I'm not pointing to David. I'm pointing to a shirt. So we take off that shirt and we say, where's David? And if I point again, now you're just pointing to the skin of the physical body. And if we rip that back, we say, where's David? Now pointing to the ribs. We rip that back. Where's David? Well, now we just got organs and fluid and tissue. There's no David to be found here. We're only given these names at birth to make it easy for people to refer to us. We're given this label of James and Manal and Teresa and other names as a label. What's really going on here, what's really true reality, is we've got this big bag of skin with all these fluids and tissues and bones in there. And then there's this mind or this consciousness that has come together for this existence, for this birth. A physical body and a mind that have come together for this unique birth, this unique existence. Because when you came home from school and your grandmother asked your mom, if they would have said, hey, did that bag of bones, that big bag of skin with bones and fluid and tissue come home yet? Are they doing their homework? Right. We couldn't say that because nobody would know who you're talking about because there's a bunch of bags with fluid and bones and a mind walking around. So we get these labels at birth to make it easy for people to know who we're talking about. And the problem becomes that the unenlightened mind starts associating this label of David or Teresa, or James, Manal, Judith, all these names that we get. We get these names. And now we start associating a certain identity, a certain image, a certain personality, and now we start defending it. But in reality, this is just the mind holding on, thinking falsely that this physical body or this mind is the self. And the Buddha is saying, there is no self. This is the reason why you'll see people post on Facebook or you hear your friends they can get into their 30s or 40s or even in their 20s and say, you know, I just want to unplug from all of this and go find myself. 
or I need to go find myself. People will go on these months and months and months of international travel and they're saying, I'm going to go find myself. But nobody ever comes back and says they found them. They found their self, right? They might feel better that they took a holiday and they got to de-stress for a while, but they never found their self because there is no self. And this is why people constantly are trying to find their self because there isn't one. And it's kind of like a never ending journey. It's like a cycle where you just keep going around and around and around and around, keep trying to find yourself and you never find it. So the Buddha teaches you that there is no self and he teaches you how to eradicate from the mind this concept of a self that it's holding on to. And when you eradicate that concept, that false identification in the unenlightened mind, now the mind can be more peaceful because it's no longer protecting the self. Okay. Any questions on this one before we start talking about the uh, Four Noble Truths? Yes, Teacher David. Donnie has a question on Zoom. Is the self that we identify as us, is it actually referring to our ego? The self is part of the ego. The word that we're using for the ego, the Buddha didn't have that word during his lifetime. So he didn't use the word ego. The Buddha used the word non-self. He talked about non-self. And he also talked about conceit or arrogance, pride, measuring and comparing people. And these are two separate things that the Buddha talks about eradicating from the mind in order to get to enlightenment that we are in modern day combining and we're calling the ego. So the self and arrogance or conceit or pride are coming together and forming what we call the ego. So the answer is yes, the self is part of the ego, but it's not the entire ego. There's other parts to it. Okay, David, those are all the questions we have at this time. All right. So now, before we go into the Four Noble Truths, Let's talk about what craving, desire, attachment is, because this is another foundational teaching before we talk about the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is going to lay out for you why we experience discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the whole path forward. But in order to understand that, you need to understand what a craving, desire, attachment is. A craving, desire, attachment is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. This is how the mind pulls towards something. I just want that new car, and if I get that new car, I know everything will be wonderful. Or if I just get that boyfriend or girlfriend, everything will be wonderful. If I just get a raise, or if I just get that new job, or I just get some friends, or if I just get my Facebook account to have 2,000 friends, or if I just get that new pair of shoes, or if I just get that new house, or, you know, the list goes on and on and on because the mind has this outward searching for satisfaction, this craving, desire, attachment, mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. It just wants the objects of its affection. You can also put in there expectations, wants, holding, or grasping, or clinging. These are all words that we use in Buddhist terminology to describe this aspect of the mind where it's searching externally, looking for satisfaction. It has this longing with a strong eagerness, and then it tries to hold on to things 
and pull it in close. This is what a craving desire attachment is. There's no such thing as a wholesome craving desire attachment. All craving desire attachment is going to cause problems, which we're going to talk about in the Four Noble Truths. If the mind really, really wants some candy and it doesn't get it, it's going to have problems. If the mind really, really wants a new car and it can't get it, it's going to have problems. If the mind really, really wants to meditate and it really wants to meditate and it can't, it's going to have problems. That's what we're going to talk about next. So all craving, desire, attachment, we're describing it as a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. And this is also expectations. We oftentimes put expectations on ourselves because the mind thinks there's a self. So we put expectations on ourselves, and we also put expectations on others because we want certain things. And if we get the objects of our affection, hmm, we have these pleasant feelings. But if we don't, that's when the painful feelings are going to come, right? So what you're going to see next is the goal of these teachings, which is to eliminate this from the mind. So every Buddhist teacher has a slight different way that they're describing craving desire attachment. So that's why I like to just be sure that you understand how I'm describing it so that you're very clear on that before we go in to talk about the Four Noble Truths. Are there any questions on this? What is a craving desire attachment? And also how it associates with expectations, wants, holdings, grasping, and clinging. We have no questions at this time, David. All right. So now to the real heart of what we were building up to. This is where the Buddha really lays out in four simple statements, the problem, the cause of the problem, the elimination of the problem, and the way forward to completely eliminate the problem 100%. Now, the language that he used is in the book. It's in chapter four. I put it in there. He goes into a very deep description of the Four Noble Truths. I've summarized it here in a way to help you understand it so that you can apply it in your life on a day-to-day basis and you can see the truth in it 100%. The first noble truth is that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. So if you experience painful feelings, pleasant feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, then you know you're unenlightened. So if you experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, happiness, excitement, elation, loneliness, boredom, shyness, unsatisfactory condition of the mind, then that's discontentedness and you know you're unenlightened. No big deal because there's lots of unenlightened people in the world. The goal of this path is so that you can attain enlightenment. But the problem here that the Buddha is describing is everyone is experiencing this discontentedness and therefore this unenlightened mind, this untrained mind, is going to continue to struggle in the world. The second noble truth is that discontentedness is caused by our own attachments because the mind craves for everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. Okay, I'm going to say that a few times and we're going to talk about it. Okay, 
Discontentedness is caused by our own attachments because the mind craves for everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So these painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant are being caused by the mind. The mind is causing its own discontentedness. What the unenlightened mind thinks is that my brother made me angry or my children made me angry or my boss made me angry. But what the Buddha is saying is that's not true. The mind is actually causing itself to be discontent because of attachment, because of these craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. The mind wants the objects of its affection. And it's causing itself to be discontent because it's craving this and it wants permanence. And because everything is impermanent, the mind is actually causing itself to be discontent. Now, remember, you're not believing me here. You're not believing the Buddha. So let's practice this. Look at some examples and then you can see the truth for yourself. Let me use an example that I think the vast majority of the world is familiar with is if you've had a boyfriend or girlfriend before and you guys first met, when you first met, everything was so grand and so wonderful. All you were interested in doing is getting to know this person. And boy, was it wonderful, right? You spent time together. You probably went to coffee, You maybe went to the movies, you went for walks in the park or whatever it was. And everything was wonderful because you didn't want anything from each other. You're just interested to get to know each other. So it was quite enjoyable. But as this relationship went on, all of a sudden the expectations came. You expected certain things of them. They expected certain things of you. This was craving desire attachment, mental longing with a strong eagerness. You wanted certain things. They wanted certain things. When you got what you wanted, you felt good, you felt happy, you felt excited. When they got what they wanted, they felt good, they felt excited. But the problem is that these expectations kept growing and growing and growing and growing. And eventually, either you or them couldn't fulfill the expectations any longer. So now, you weren't able to fulfill those expectations permanently or they weren't able to fulfill those expectations permanently. And that's what caused the mind to be discontent. There was now painful feelings, sadness, anger, frustration. And at some point, you guys decided to split and you decided to leave. And even if you made the conscious choice to end the relationship, the mind still probably became lonely, bored, frustrated, or otherwise. Because the mind was holding on to this person, right? During the relationship, when you guys were together, you might have blamed the other person for causing you to be angry or frustrated. Or when you guys split, or they left you, or you left them, you or them might have blamed each other for that. But in reality, those feelings that were arising in the mind, the anger, the frustration, the loneliness, the boredom, that was all caused by the mind because the mind had certain expectations, certain cravings, certain things that it wanted from this other person. And as long as it got them, then the mind was happy. 
The mind was experiencing, you know, good feelings. But then when it couldn't get what it wanted, that's when it became angered or frustrated. Let me give you another example, something not so emotional like a relationship. Let's say that you saved up a bunch of money to go buy a car and you take the car, you drive this brand new car, you park it, you go in the store, and then when you come out, you see a scratch on the car and your mind just becomes so enraged and frustrated because of this scratch on the car. And at that point, you might blame the other person and say, this person who scratched my car made me so angry. Well, they didn't make you angry. You actually made yourself angry. The reason why is because the mind craved permanence. The mind expected this car to stay brand new and look permanently beautiful. And then when it wasn't, when that scratch came, i.e. impermanence, when impermanence came to visit you, the mind said, I don't like this. I don't like this impermanence. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get frustrated because I don't like this impermanence. But the mind doesn't know that, right? Because it's a knowing of that. But that's essentially what's happening. Because somebody else could walk out of the store and see that scratch and say, huh, thank goodness I got insurance. Let me go get it fixed and remain completely calm and peaceful if the mind is trained to understand impermanence. So if you acknowledge and you understand and you have the wisdom of impermanence, when you were signing the papers for the car to buy it, you knew that it wasn't going to stay looking brand new permanently because you know the car is impermanent. But if the mind's holding on, thinking this car is going to look this way permanently, then you're going to cause yourself to be discontent. Or if you're craving for your kids to do something in a certain way, you have this mental longing and strong eagerness for your kids, your life partner, your boss, your job, your coworkers, your neighbors, your house. If you're craving for things to be permanent and be a certain way, because everything is impermanent, at some point you're going to cause yourself to be discontent. This is the whole problem of why you've been experiencing discontentedness your whole life is because the mind is untrained and it doesn't understand impermanence. It doesn't understand that all these things in the world are impermanent and it's craving and trying to hold on. And because it's trying to hold on, everything starts changing and now the mind becomes discontent. So here where I'm saying the cause of the discontentedness is because the mind craves for everything to be permanent. Another way to say that is the unenlightened mind doesn't like impermanence. The unenlightened mind absolutely does not like impermanence. Well, guess what? Everything's impermanent pretty much. So if you walk around, if you continue to walk around, with this unenlightened mind that keeps craving permanence everywhere you go. It keeps craving permanence. It's uncomfortable with impermanence, but yet you're in a world that is completely impermanent. Then you're just going to be stuck in this cycle of constantly causing yourself discontentedness over and over and over and over again. You're going to be happy 
then you're going to be sad. You'll be peaceful for a little while. Then you'll be bored. Then you'll be lonely. Then you'll be excited. Then you'll be frustrated. Then you'll be annoyed, right? The mind's going to just keep flipping around because it's untrained and it doesn't like this impermanence. And it's looking externally with this longing, with a strong eagerness for permanence. So the second noble truth is describing the cause of the problem. Discontentedness is caused by our own attachments, this mental longing and strong eagerness, because the mind craves, has this mental longing and strong eagerness for everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. This is a very important foundational teaching that you need to see, and you need to see it very clearly. One of the ways for you to see it clearly is right now, think about the last time you were frustrated, angry, annoyed. It might've just been a few hours ago, or it might've been yesterday, right? Think about the last time you were angry, frustrated, annoyed, and try to look at what the mind was craving. Maybe at that time, yesterday or this morning, you were blaming somebody else for making you angry, but that's not true reality, okay? Now that you understand the truth, that the mind is causing itself to be discontent, now look inside the mind. In that situation where your mind was angry, frustrated, annoyed, whatever, what was it that the mind was craving? It wanted something, and when it didn't get it, it got angry. It might have been two, three, four things. Typically, early in practice, it usually is. It's not usually just one. So if any of you guys would like to share, or if you're having trouble discovering this for yourself, you can say, here's the situation. I'm not quite sure what I was craving in this situation. So you can share that in the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderators will share that. So share what it is that made you angry, frustrated, irritated, annoyed, and we can talk about it as an example to help you see that you caused it yourself. And everybody in the world who's unenlightened is doing this, so no need to be shy, right? Everybody's experiencing this who's unenlightened, so you are right along with everybody else. So it's a matter of helping you see the truth here, not a matter of anything else, but helping you to see that you are, in fact, causing your own discontentedness. Do we have anybody that shared, James? Well, Holly wanted to ask, is this something that happens gradually or suddenly? It can be both. It can be both. It can oftentimes be sudden, but it can also be a gradual thing too. It really all depends. Each situation is different. Okay. That's the only question we have at this time. We've had no one to share their experiences thus far. Okay. So I have gave a couple of examples. One with boyfriend, girlfriend, which I think most of us can relate to. Also one with a car. You know, I use this one sometimes about like, say you have kids and the mind craves for your kids to have good grades, right? The Buddhist teachings aren't about what's right or wrong, right? It's not about what's right or wrong here because yeah, the kids should have good grades. But the Buddha is talking about is what's the cause of the discontentedness? If your mind craves for your kids to come home with all A's or all B's or however your country does grading, and you just want that really badly. And when they come home and they have a grade less than what you wanted, you're going to be angry. You're going to be frustrated. 
And now you're going to start talking bad to your kids and causing all kinds of problems in the household, right? Because your kids can't permanently get all A's or all B's. It's not possible because of impermanence, right? They're not going to be able to meet your expectations all the time. It's not possible, right? So it's not about what's right or wrong because, yeah, it's good for children to have good grades. But it's recognizing that your mind wanting it and craving it is what's exciting and causing that discontentedness in the mind. And when they come home with good grades, the mind's happy. That's still discontentedness. The mind's excited, elated. It's still discontent. Because now when they come home with bad grades or one grade that's off from what you expected, now you're going to be angry and sad, frustrated. But those good grades are impermanent. But also those bad grades are impermanent too. They can be improved, right? But the mind thinks these bad grades are permanent. The mind thinks that these bad grades are permanent and now it's going to get angry and it's going to get frustrated rather than just being, you know what? All right, you didn't do as good as we were hoping. Let's figure this out and make it better. Simple, right? But the mind doesn't want to do that naturally because it doesn't understand how to do that. It's untrained. And the more you train it, the more you'll understand how to do that. What the second noble truth is essentially getting at is you taking responsibility for your own emotions, your own feelings. If you walk around and you continue to blame other people for the feelings and emotions that are coming in the mind, then you're never going to fix this problem because it's everyone else's fault. It's everyone else's fault that I'm angry and frustrated. So let me go fix them. Let me fix my kids and make sure they do everything I want them to do. Let me fix my life partner and make sure he or she does everything I want them to do. Let me fix my parents, my siblings, my boss, my coworkers. All these people have to do everything I want. And as long as they do that, then everything's perfect. Well, good luck with that, right? It's not going to work because there's 7.5 billion people in the world that you have to train. And there's more people being born all the time that are going to need to do things your way. Or the other option is you can train your mind, just one. And you've got complete control over your mind. If you train it, you will get complete control over it. So what the second noble truth is encouraging you to do and helping you to see is take responsibility for your feelings. And when you do so, now you can do something about it. Because if you realize that you're the one causing the discontentedness, then that means you have the ability to solve it. But if everyone else is causing the discontentedness, then you're going to go off in the world and try to fix everybody else. But the real problem is your mind, just like everyone else, right? So the third noble truth is getting to the solution. The solution to this is because the second noble truth is saying the cause is this craving, desire, attachment, this longing with strong eagerness, then the solution in the third noble truth is the elimination of discontentedness as possible by eliminating attachments. By eliminating that craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing with a strong eagerness where the mind is searching externally for satisfaction and trying to hold on to things, wanting permanence, then what you've got to do is you've got to train this mind to be comfortable with impermanence. 
because right now the unenlightened mind is uncomfortable with impermanence. The more comfortable you make the mind, the more trained it becomes to let go and accept impermanence, the more peaceful the mind becomes. So the Buddha gives us specific training of how to train the mind to acknowledge and accept impermanence. And this is part of the life practice. This is breathing mindfulness meditation that we do on Wednesdays and that you should be doing every day now is that you close the eyes, you breathe in through the nose, out through the nose, and focus the mind on the breath. As the thoughts, ideas, perceptions come to the mind, you train the mind to let go, let go, let go, and come back to the breath. Because what the unenlightened mind is going to want to do is hold on. It's craving this permanence. It wants to hold on. But what you're doing in breathing mindfulness meditation is you're training the mind to let go, let go, let go, let go. Okay? And by training the mind to let go, more and more you will gain control over this mind. So that when you're driving in traffic and someone cuts you off and then the mind becomes angry because the mind was craving permanence. It wanted that lane to itself permanently. And now when someone cut you off, you didn't like that impermanence. So now you get angry. Well, if you train the mind to let go, when this person cuts you off, hmm, that makes sense. There's impermanence, right? There it is. Or when you get a flat tire when you're driving in the car, instead of getting angry, ah, there's impermanence, right? Or you run out of gas, oh, there's impermanence, right? Or your kids come home with grades that you weren't thinking they were, there's impermanence. You just keep identifying impermanence, but the mind is going to want to react. It's going to react with anger and hostility. And you've got to train it with breathing mindfulness meditation to let go so that when this person cuts you off, ah, let it go. Just let it go. But it's going to take time for you to do that. The mind's been like this for a really long period of time. It's not going to just change overnight because of one talk. It's going to happen. And bringing this to your awareness, you're going to start seeing it now. When you become angry and frustrated, you're going to be, ah, there's the craving, desire, there's the discontentness. So when you see other people become frustrated and angry, you're going to see their craving and desire. So you're going to start seeing that this is true more and more as you start moving out into the world. So breathing mindfulness meditation is the training that we use to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment where the mind's longing with a strong eagerness. And we also practice generosity, freely giving our time, our effort, our energy, our resources. Share some potato chips, share a smile, share you know a little bit of food with somebody here or there. By sharing with people, then the mind doesn't hold things selfishly, right? Because of the self, because the mind has this self, it's going to want to be selfish and it's going to want to hold on to things tightly. But we practice generosity to live open-handedly so that the mind gets used to letting go, that all these potato chips aren't mine, or all these pencils aren't mine, or I've got to hold back my respect and I'm only going to respect you if you respect me. This is conditions, right? No, you've got to live open-handedly and just be generous. 
So these are the two ways that we kind of generally train the mind, but we're going to expand upon this and we're going to deepen that in this program. As we progress in this program, I'm going to teach you more and more about how to eliminate this discontentedness with these tools and with some other tools as well. But I need you to understand that you're causing your own discontentedness and because you're causing it, you can also eliminate it. This is why you can eliminate anger and frustration and annoyance because you're the one causing it. If everyone else is causing it and you blame it on them, that's wrong view. And that means you can't change them. So therefore you'll never get rid of your anger. You'll never get rid of it because it's everyone else's fault. But right here, if you accept and you start seeing more and more clearly that you're causing the discontentedness, then that's very liberating because now you see I can eliminate it because I'm the one causing it. And all you've got to do now is learn more and more of the teachings, implement them into your life more and more and train the mind more and more. And it gets better and better and better over time through this gradual training. And because you're causing it, you can eliminate it. That's what the third noble truth is telling you. And then the fourth noble truth, the Buddha basically says, this is the path. This is the way to eliminate 100% of all your discontentedness. And that's the eightfold path. So the way that I describe it is the path to eliminating discontentedness is the eightfold path. And that's the entire path with all the teachings that plug into it. So the more you learn this comprehensive life practice that the Buddha laid out for you, the more you learn it and practice it, it's just guidance. It's not rules to follow. It's not laws. It's not commandments. There is no sin here, right? It's about why is the mind discontent and let's fix it. Let's train this mind. And the beauty is, is that you'll see the mind go from anger to frustration, to irritation, to annoyance, to that same thing can be happening that happened a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago. It's like, huh, last month I would have got furious with that but wow, I don't feel anything at all. And then you see these teachings are working. My goodness, was that Buddha really smart? That's why they called him a Buddha, because he was so wise, right? And he figured out why the mind is discontent. And when you start figuring it out and you start putting these pieces together and you start training the mind gradually, you'll start seeing the mind gradually improve as well. And then you'll see that you're learning the truth, that it's not believe, 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 hope that when you die, something good happens. It's learn right now, train the mind right now, see the results right now. Your life gets better and better and better because the condition of the mind gets better and better and better. And you become more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy right now. And you get to enjoy the hard work that you're doing to learn and practice these teachings as the condition of the mind gradually improves. So that's how this path works, but it all starts with right view. Right view is seeing and taking responsibility for your own feelings. If you blame everyone else for why you're angry, that's wrong view. So the right view of this world is that you're causing it yourself, but you can also eliminate it. 
So let's pause here before we talk about rate intention and see if there's any questions on rate view whatsoever. Looks like we've had a flurry of incoming questions in the last few minutes. I'll start with Emily's. Much of my discontentedness comes from my attachment to wanting people to like me. I think everyone should like me. Yes, this is a perfect example, Emily. Thank you for sharing it. There you see it. The mind craves. It has this mental longing and strong eagerness for everyone to like you. And now, knowing what you learned today, is it possible for everyone to permanently like you? For 100% in the world, people in the world, 100% of the time, are they going to like you? You know the answer. The answer is no, they're not. But because the mind keeps craving it and wanting it, that's why you're causing yourself discontentedness. Now, it's one thing to understand this intellectually, which it sounds like that you are based on your question and your statement there. It's one thing to understand it intellectually, but it's a whole other thing to practice it. When you see someone doesn't like you and now the mind becomes frustrated because of it. And that's why you have to go under training where you train your mind with breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity to train the mind to let go. And by you doing this more and more and more, you'll get more comfortable with just being a friendly, polite, kind, respectful person. And when people like you, that's fine. Your mind's unaffected by it. You don't get happy. You don't get excited or elated. You're just like, okay, I'm trying to be the very best person I can be. But then when people don't like you, you just know, okay, I can't please everyone in the world. It's not possible because everyone has their own pollution in their mind. Everybody has their own expectations and you're not going to be able to meet everyone's expectations 100% of the time. So you're understanding this perfectly, but now it's just a matter of training the mind in the moment to be able to do these things where you won't react negatively when you know somebody doesn't like you. Holly has a two-part question. First, she asks, what about creating happiness for other beings? And the second is, if one reaches enlightenment, is that permanent? Can you fall out of an enlightened state? Okay, let's talk about these. So this is where I was mentioning in terms about craving something wholesome. It's still going to lead to discontentedness. So if you have craving, desire, attachment for everyone to be peaceful and happy and loving, it's not going to happen during your lifetime because that would be permanence. So even something wholesome as I would like to see everyone love each other, if you crave that, then when it's not happening because it can't happen permanently, you're going to be discontent. So these teachings right now aren't saying what's right or wrong. It's just saying, why is your mind discontent? Well, because you want everyone to be happy. You want everyone to be peaceful. And that's not possible because of impermanence. And as long as your mind holds on to that, as long as it craves that, it's going to cause itself to be discontent. So what you've got to do is what the Buddha called finding the middle. You've got to find the middle. We're going to talk about this in chapter six, which is called the middle way, where the mind doesn't have this craving, desire, attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness for things to be a certain way. But also you're not lazy and lackluster and complacent either that you find this middle way. And we're going to talk about that in chapter six. But as long as you have that craving, even for good things, 
it's going to lead to discontentedness of mind. For your second part, once somebody progresses to enlightenment, what we call the fourth stage of enlightenment, it's permanent. We call this arahant or enlightenment. It's permanent because the mind's been permanently transitioned through training in this wisdom and through training the mind, it will permanently transition where it will never again experience anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, hostility. None of that stuff will be experienced in an enlightened mind. The mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy where it will just always be peaceful. It will always be joyful. There's nothing that can shake up an enlightened mind. There's nothing that will shake it up and have it feel discontentedness, either painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. It's not possible. So once you get there and you'll gradually get there more and more, it's permanent. But as you progress, even when you get to what we call the first stage of enlightenment, even from there, you can't revert backwards. You'll still experience discontentedness in the first, second, and third stage of enlightenment. But the mind won't revert backwards because it's acquired enough wisdom that it will never go backwards. And as you progress on this path, enlightenment isn't like a light switch where you instantly turn it on. So it's either on or off. It's a gradual progression. So what will happen as you're moving closer and closer to enlightenment is you'll get these glimpses where for like a week, the mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, like no anger, no sadness, no nothing. It's like, wow, this is amazing. But then something will happen and boom, you'll have some frustration come in. But then you'll get like two or three weeks. You're getting these glimpses of what enlightenment's like. And then boom, something will happen. And then you'll get one or two or three months. And then boom, something will happen. And it gets wider and wider and wider where eventually it becomes permanent. And it's all the time. It's like those old light bulbs where you turn them on and they kind of flicker. They flicker, they flicker, 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 flicker. And then boom, it's on all the time. That's the way enlightenment is, is that you'll get these glimpses of what enlightenment looks like until eventually you've gone, you know, multiple months and years without experiencing any discontentedness at all. And you will know because you know what it felt like to be angry, frustrated, and irritated. You'll know that you're enlightened. And this is why the people knew that the Buddha was a Buddha, because they knew what frustration and anger and all of those discontent feelings felt like. And as their mind progressed, they could see it. They were aware of it. They could see their mind get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So they had the truth for themselves that these teachings led exactly where he said they would. But even when you attain enlightenment and you know that you've eliminated discontentedness 100%, you should never believe that you're enlightened. Never convince the mind that you're enlightened. Even in that first or second or third stage of enlightenment and you feel like you're progressing, don't even convince yourself of that because that's so dangerous for the mind because the mind will become arrogant. It can become egotistical. It can become prideful. And if you have that, then you're not enlightened. If the mind's arrogant and prideful, then and you're comparing yourself from one person to the next. I'm more enlightened than them and they're more enlightened. You know, they're not as enlightened as me. 
this is comparing one person to another and you're not enlightened at that point. So it becomes dangerous. The other thing that can happen is the mind can become complacent where it becomes very lazy or sluggish or kind of dull. And if that happens, you're also not enlightened. Um, And if anybody goes around telling everyone that they're enlightened, then this is pride. This is ego. The way to know someone isn't enlightened is if they tell you they are enlightened. If someone openly admits and tells everyone, look at me, look at me, I'm enlightened, I'm so enlightened. Well, you know, they're not enlightened because they still have pride and they still have ego and they still have this desire, this craving for everyone to know they're enlightened. Enlightened people's minds are so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, they don't have a desire to go around and tell everyone that they're enlightened. They're just enjoying their enlightenment because it's permanent. So don't ever convince yourself if you attain enlightenment that it's actually happened and that you actually are enlightened because there's just danger in that. Once the mind eliminates discontentedness, there's so much ability to gain more and more and more wisdom in the world that now kind of getting to enlightenment is kind of like now the rest of your life is actually happening. You can actually enjoy the rest of your life because that unenlightened state was so miserable. All that sadness, anger, frustration, resentment, jealousy, all that shyness and boredom and loneliness, that was miserable. But once you get to enlightenment, you'll be like, wow, this is really wonderful. I can actually enjoy life now. So if you convince yourself that you're enlightened, even if you know you are because all the discontentedness has been eliminated, then there's danger in that. So just never convince the mind that it's actually enlightened and just keep pursuing more and more wisdom. We have a question from IA on YouTube. My laptop broke and I lost some of the work. What was I craving? So you had a certain longing and strong eagerness for the laptop to be permanent. You had worked for whatever that those documents were, whatever you were working on, you were longing with a strong eagerness to get that job done, right? So this is where I say it's not about what's right or wrong because yeah, you're trying to get your job done and that is what a good employee would do or a good boss would do. But when the mind longs for it, And when the computer broke and you lost all that work, that's the mind wasn't expecting that impermanence. It didn't like that impermanence. So that's why we have, you know, backup drives, right? Because the technology world knows about impermanence. And that's why we have backups and we have cloud storage because your hard drive is not permanent. And a wise individual would have backups because it's only a matter of time before your hard drive fails or your computer fails. It's impermanent. It will fail at some point. It's just a matter of when and how much work you lose at the time. So your mind was craving to have this permanently and it was craving to get the job done and have a certain performance maybe. Maybe there was even some ego involved there where you were looking to perform well in front of your peers or your boss or somebody. Or you maybe wanted your customers. Maybe you wanted a certain amount of money. You might have been craving that as well. So usually the more angered you get over a particular situation, the more cravings there are. It's usually early in practice. It's not just one. 
It's usually two, three, four, five, six things that the mind is craving. And the more fierce the anger and frustration is, the more cravings, the more intense they are. So as you start stripping these away and you start training the mind more and more, you'll get down to just kind of one or two that is causing any particular discontentedness. And then that's why you have less and less and less anger as you progress on this path. And then it becomes easier and easier to identify these attachments and let them go. And the mind becomes more and more peaceful. Michael has a two-part question. First one is, David didn't realize that you can also have craving for loving kindness or craving for those wholesome roots. Any, any input? Yeah, so some people even crave enlightenment, right? Or crave loving kindness and compassion. And as long as there's craving, desire, attachment, the mind's going to be discontent. So you can't even crave enlightenment. You can't even crave attaining results on this path. And this is why when we Bassam was asking his question, it's sometimes good for the mind to just consider yourself already enlightened and there's all this pollution in the way and you just got to get rid of this pollution. Because as long as you crave enlightenment or you crave loving kindness or you crave compassion the mind's going to be discontent because you can't get those things permanently right now right so if you have this longing and strong eagerness for enlightenment you'll never get it until you eliminate that you've got to pursue enlightenment as a goal as an objective as an interest that you gradually progress towards over time same thing with loving kindness and compassion This isn't about you always getting loving kindness and compassion from other people. It's about you developing your practice so that you're practicing loving kindness and compassion all the time. So you should be doing that and working more and more towards that goal. And we're going to talk about that in chapter 13 when we talk about the Brahma Viharas. We'll talk about loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, and how to practice those things and ramp up your practice more and more so that you're practicing those things. But if your mind is craving to practice them permanently, right now you're not there yet. So you will become angered and hostile sometimes, or you will have some frustration. It's just going to happen. That's the way the mind works. Or if you're craving for other people to show you loving kindness and compassion all the time, that's craving permanence and you're just setting yourself up to fail. So you've got to recognize that this is not going to lead to, even when you attain enlightenment, your mind is still going to be experiencing impermanence because it's a, your mind in terms of its life, your life is still going to experience impermanence. You're still going to have a flat tire. You're still going to have a scratch on your car. You're still going to have challenges in life where things are going to be happening. But the mind through enlightenment is going to be so wise to these natural laws of existence that when you see someone not being loving and kind and compassionate, it's not going to cause anger or frustration inside of you because the wisdom of the enlightened mind automatically recognizes the impermanence that is happening there is that, okay, not everyone in the world is loving, kind, and compassionate. And also on this journey, you're not going to always be loving, kind, and compassionate yourself. 
until you actually get to enlightenment fully and it's permanent. So don't have the expectation that just because you sat in one of these talks that you're going to instantly be going to be able to go out, snap the fingers and practice all these teachings because it doesn't work that way. So you've got to gradually progress pursuing goals, objectives and interest without putting expectations on yourself that you've got to be a certain place at a certain time on this path. He also asks, so discontentedness is caused by our attachments. Does aversion count as an attachment or is aversion a separate thing? Aversion is separate. We're going to talk about aversion when we get to chapter eight in the book. This is the primary problem here in terms of what causes discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment, these expectations, these wants, this clinging. But there's a second problem here that we call hatred, anger, ill will, or aversion. And then there's a third problem, which we call ignorance, delusion, or unknowing of true reality. These are called the three poisons, the three unwholesome roots, or the three fires. And there's antidotes to these to transform them and practice the opposite, which will transform the mind. But we're going to get into that in chapter eight, Michael, so that we kind of layer the teachings bit by bit. Nick asks on Zoom, I did have a question. I am trying to word it. I was reading chapter four last night. I have eliminated a lot of discontentedness. I now believe some of this may be aversion, though, as I am in much better surroundings. I thought it was from following the Eightfold Path and catching myself when I do find myself in harsh surroundings. I thought I was further on the path from having less discontent and annoyances. In hard situations, I feel the unwholesome mental functions still rising, but I can catch them 90% of the time. The ones I do not catch, I make amends and apologize for right away. I believe that this is admitting I am the one causing my own discontentedness. Am I in the ballpark? And when one is enlightened, do they even feel these unwholesome qualities? Or what is the feeling in harsh and unagreeable situations when you are enlightened? You're starting to understand the teachings, Nick, and you're starting to put things together. But you're not enlightened because you haven't completely been practicing the Eightfold Path for an extended period of time. And you haven't eliminated what we call the Ten Fetters. So... You're not enlightened yet, but you're starting to understand this path and you're starting to practice it. Someone who's enlightened wouldn't experience the things that you're talking about, the discontentedness. They wouldn't experience it at all. It would just be life would be so smooth and so fluid. There would be no discontentedness whatsoever. The mind would just always be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Even when you eliminate kind of the outward anger and frustration as you're kind of diminishing these feelings on this path, you will get to a point before you even get to enlightenment where you won't have any outward frustration or irritation, but inwardly there's still going to be this ickiness and this unsettledness inside the mind. So outwardly, other people might not be able to tell you're angry or frustrated, irritated or annoyed, but inwardly, there's still going to be this ickiness. And this is just part of that deterioration and that kind of bringing it down. It's almost like you're smothering a fire, right? These three fires that we call our three poisons or three unwholesome roots, they're blaring. They're big, huge bonfires before you get on this path. 
And what these teachings are doing through the training is you're kind of smothering this fire more and more and more. And just when you think you've got it smothered and you start focusing on something else, that one flares up again. And now you've got to go over here and you've got to, you know, kind of put all these fires down. And over time, you kind of bring all of this into balance and it, the mind gradually awakens more and more and more. So I would say don't try to figure out where you are on the path at this point. There's two sides to this. One side, you don't want to be always comparing and trying to figure out, am I enlightened yet? Am I enlightened yet? Am I enlightened yet? Am I at the first stage? Am I at the second stage? Where am I? Am I, am I there yet? Am I there yet? Right? Because that's the craving desire attachment. Am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? On one side, you're not interested in doing that. But on the other side, you do need to take stock in the personal inventory of the various qualities of mind that you're trying to eliminate and the ones that you're trying to cultivate. So if you know that you're a fairly selfish person, for example, just out of the blue, let's just say you felt like you were a selfish person and you needed to work on generosity. It's really good for the mind to know that, that, hey, I tend to be somewhat selfish. Let me improve that and be more generous. Or I tend to be angry and have ill will or hatred towards people. Let me practice loving kindness more. And you've got to work with these tools more and more and more. And what this whole path and this whole program is about is sharing all the various problems in the unenlightened mind and then sharing all the solutions that's going to take you to the enlightened mind. And then over the course of many months and years, you're putting all this together, getting rid of these unwholesome qualities and arising these wholesome qualities. And it's just going to take time for all of that to take root and for you to fully be practicing. But what you shared is good that you're starting to become aware of these things and you're starting to kind of observe them and start to kind of get your mind around it. You're kind of grappling with this, right? You're getting your, your mind around it. Emily has a comment. I still struggle with not falling into believing I would be more content if I had a different job, lived somewhere else, had more friends, etc. Yeah, so there's two sides to this as well. On one side, you don't want to have this longing and strong eagerness to make all of these things and I've got to have this new job in order for me to be content. I've got to have more friends in order for me to be content. I've got to have this in order to be content. That's the craving desire attachment. That's going to lead to discontentedness. But on another side, as you start learning these teachings and you start awakening the mind to these teachings, you might realize that some of the decisions that you've made in the past aren't decisions that you would have made now being more awake to these teachings. You might be working at a job where the people are hostile, aggressive, disrespectful, impolite, unkind, unfriendly. Maybe there's a lot of greed there. And you didn't think about those things because your mind wasn't awake to them in the past and you decided to get this job. But now as your mind awakens and you start realizing the kind of choices that you made in the past, and that you're surrounded by situations and people that you feel that wouldn't be the most conducive for your journey to enlightenment, you're gonna to have to do what we call cleaning up your gamma or cleaning up your decisions. And this is something that everyone has to do as part of this path. 
So as you become more awake to these teachings and you gain more and more wisdom, what awake means is you're gaining more wisdom in these teachings. So that is what awakens the mind is the wisdom. You might need to start implementing changes to your home life, to your job, to your relationship with your parents or your siblings, your children, your loved ones, your life partner. You might have to start making some changes and you most likely will because you have been making some decisions based on the unwholesome roots in the past. So now you're going to need to start making better and better decisions as your mind gradually awakens to this. So on one side, you don't want to have this longing and strong eagerness for all these things to change. But on another side, you don't want to just sit and dwell in the misery either. So you've got to find that middle where you consistently make decisions day by day to improve your life. And you do it through your knowledge and your wisdom of the Eightfold Path. So the more you awaken to these teachings, the more capable you'll be to apply good decision-making with wisdom to improve the condition of your mind, which will improve the condition of your life. Ashish asks, why has nature created the mind to naturally want to hold on to things? If true contentedness lies in the mind not holding on, why haven't we evolved to a quality of mind that is not constantly grasping for permanence? The reason why the human mind does this is because of our animal existences, okay? As an animal, we've all been previous animals, many, many countless animals. As an animal, an animal can't cultivate its consciousness. It's got craving and that's what sustains its life. And it's got this self, that non-self that we were talking about. It's got that self out of protection for the self because if a deer got rid of the self, it would get attacked and killed almost instantly. It has to be fearful to be able to run. Or if animals didn't have this craving for sexual contact, they wouldn't survive. Or if they didn't have craving to fight and ward off enemies, they wouldn't be able to survive. So the human consciousness is conditioned based on our previous animal existences. But why that's happened, that's the part that I'm saying we don't know. It's just that's the way the, the world works. That's just the natural laws of existence. And it doesn't really matter. The truth of the matter is, is that you're human now. You've got this physical body. You've got this mind. It's discontent. The only way to get out of that is to train the mind. Why you're in this condition and why the natural laws of existence are set up this way, it doesn't really matter. Why do we have gravity? Does it really matter? I mean, we could function if we were all floating around without gravity too. But the fact is that we have gravity. Let's figure out how to work with it and let's get wise about it and do things in accordance with gravity. Let's not try to figure out why we have gravity. Let's just get along and be peaceful and peacefully coexist with gravity. So rather than try to apply a lot of effort to figure out why the mind is there other than the fact of our past lives rather than trying to figure out why was our mind created this way let's just deal with the problem at hand that we got in this moment which is a discontent mind learn the natural laws of existence train the mind get to enlightenment and then you won't have to deal with all this discontentedness and misery that in these struggles that have been going on throughout your life and that's where the real benefit is. It appears that's all the questions on Zoom at the moment. 
Okay, so let's go to the next step, which is actually a lot easier to talk about in terms of shortness. The first step of right view is quite elaborate because everything else is built on right view. Without you firmly establishing right view, you wouldn't be able to learn and practice anything else of Gautama Buddha's teachings. So if you spend your time doing anything over the next week, I suggest you listen back to this talk on YouTube and Facebook on our podcast a few times. And if you would like to read in the book or use the audiobook, listen to chapter four, okay, or read chapter four. Because without right view, i.e. accepting responsibility for your own feelings, you wouldn't make any other progress on this path to enlightenment. And this is why the Buddha kept coming back to right view over and over and over again in his teachings. He constantly talked about the Four Noble Truths and kept coming back to it over and over and over again because without it, you would be unsuccessful because you would just be blaming everyone else for the problems. So why would you have to fix anything, right? So right view is utterly important. The second step we call right intention. Some people call this right thinking or right thought. I call it right intention. But understanding that it's right thinking or right thought is helpful because it's the thoughts in the mind. And here's what the Buddha has to say about right intention, just a little bit, you know, just a little bit. He has a lot of other things to say about it too. But his words are, in what bhikkhus is right intention? The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness, this bhikkhus is called right intention. So this is the second step. So let's break this down and look at it very closely. What is the intention of renunciation? Well, the way to define renunciation is the formal rejection of something, typically a belief, a claim, or a course of action. So what the Buddha is talking about here is that you reject belief that you be willing to let go. You have to be willing to let go. If your mind wants to hold on to everything and you're not having the intention of letting go, because that's the whole problem he talks about in right view, is that the mind's holding on. So as he moves into right intention, the first component of right intention is training the mind to be willing to let go. Let go of beliefs. Let go of these false truths. Let go of this conditioning that's in the mind. Let go of substances that cause heedlessness. Let go of lying. Let go of sexual misconduct. Let go of stealing. You know, there's a lot of things and we're going to get to why we need to let go of those things and how they cause problems in our life. Not as rules, not as commandments, but how it relates to the condition of the mind. So this intention of renunciation is to have the intention of letting go. That's the first component of right intention. The second component is the intention of non-ill will. Ill will is animosity or bitterness. So you have to have the intention or the thought or the thinking. I'm not interested in having this ill will, this animosity, this bitterness, this anger, right? You need to be willing to let that go that hatred, that anger, that frustration, that bitterness. You need to have the thought or the thinking of non-ill will, that you're not interested 
and having animosity or bitterness towards others. And then the third piece here is the intention of harmlessness. Harmlessness is not causing harm or being incapable of causing harm. Right now, if you're not on this path and you're not enlightened, which you probably aren't or you wouldn't be learning with me, is that you are causing harm in the world. Even though in your mind you might feel that you're the most loving, the most kind, you try your very best to be polite and friendly and respectful, there are harms that you're causing because you don't quite understand what you don't understand. The mind has this unknowing of true reality. It doesn't understand the harms that it's causing in the world. And because the mind isn't wise to this, it doesn't have the wisdom, you're causing harm and putting harm into the world. So therefore, harm is coming back to you. This is the natural law of gamma, cause and effect, action, result, essentially the results of your decisions. So this second step is establishing that you're willing to let go of things, that you're not interested in being bitter or having animosity, and you're not interested in causing harm to other beings. Because the more that you learn about the Buddhist teachings, what they all boil down to is not causing harm to others. Because if you cause harm to others, harm is going to come to you. This is the natural law of gamma. If you talk aggressive and harsh and vindictive to people, then they're going to speak that way to you because you're doing it to them. Or if you gossip and you lie and you slander people, that's what's going to happen to you. If you go around hitting people and bullying people and fighting with people, then that's what's going to happen to you. This is a natural law, the natural law of gamma. And we're going to go into this in a lot of detail in chapter nine of the book. But this whole eightfold path that we're going to be covering in these teachings, the core teachings of the Buddha, are all centered around explaining the type of harms that we cause in the world. And by causing harm in the world, these harms are going to come back to us. So what the Eightfold Path is about is giving you the wisdom of how to now practice, how to apply good decision making in your daily life through your life practice so that you're no longer causing harm in the world. And by you no longer causing harm to others, over time, gradually, harm won't come back to you. And this is the gradual training and gradual progress of learning these teachings gradually, intellectually, reflecting on them and practicing them in daily life. And the more that you do that with all the people around you, more and more you will clean up all the bad decisions that you made in the past. So if you've been aggressive and hostile to your children or to your life partner or to your coworkers, okay, that's the way you were in the past. That's in the past. Now, what you're going to be learning on this eightfold path is how to clean up your conduct, which is next week. Today is just the wisdom. Next week is about the moral conduct and then the mental discipline of how to control the mind, your own mind right? So that it doesn't unravel and react with anger and hostility. But today is all about building the wisdom that the reason why 
things don't go well for you in your life and the reason why you're having certain challenges and complications is because you're causing harm in the world so therefore harm is coming back to you by you having the intention or the thought or the thinking of not being interested to harm practicing harmlessness by you setting that intention and then working closer and closer to that goal you've now got the wisdom that you need to improve your moral conduct and improve your mental discipline, which are the next two classes that we're gonna teach over the next two weeks. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. We have a question from Biplab. He's asking, is the pursuit of Nibbana selfishness? I don't think it's selfishness at all because you're already causing harm in the world. If you're off this path or you're not yet enlightened, you're causing harm. That's selfish, that you are not interested in proving your life, improving your mind, improving your decisions, and you're putting all this harm out in the world. By you focusing on yourself, even though we know there isn't one, but by you focusing on training this mind, and you improving your practice over the course of your life, then that's the best thing you can do for yourself. It's the best thing you can do for the people around you and all of humanity, because the more you improve your mind, the less harm you're going to be putting into the world. Selfishness would be to remain complacent or to continue to cause harm in the world and not care that you're causing harm. So by focusing on your own mind, by focusing on training your mind, it's actually the best thing you can do for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity. We have an anonymous question on Facebook. How can we stop our desire for our mind? Example, if I love something, how can I control it? How can you control the thing you love or how can you control the mind? Because when we get in, and you can clarify that with James, and if I haven't answered your question by the end, then we can follow up uh, with a, a follow-up question. But the way the unenlightened mind understands love is actually, it's not love. This is what we're going to explore in chapter 14. The unenlightened mind thinks that what love is, is I love you. Therefore, I want to be with you because you make me happy right? I love you. You make me happy and I want to be with you and I want you to be with me because you make me happy and I love you. And as long as you meet these conditions in my ever-growing list of expectations, I will continue to love you. As soon as you stop meeting those expectations, I don't love you anymore. That's not love. That's selfish desire. That's craving, desire, attachment. That's expectations. That's I want all these things from you. And as long as you meet these criteria, I'll love you. And I'll say I love you. But when you stop meeting those criteria, I don't love you anymore. That's not love. That's actually craving, desire, attachment. So the unenlightened mind is misunderstanding what love is. It's actually mistaking craving, desire, attachment as love. I want this person in my life or I want this being in my life and as long as they do what I need, then I'll continue to love them. As long as they do what I expect, I'll continue to love them. That's craving, desire, attachment. What true love is in a nutshell, and we'll explore it later in chapter 14, 
True love is, I love you. I would like to see you be peaceful. I'm here to support you and encourage you in you being peaceful. It's a whole different message than I want to be with you because you make me happy. That's very selfish, right? What you've got to transform this to is realize that that misunderstanding of love is actually causing you to smother your relationships and crush your relationships. And this is why if you have relationships that are going bad, they're going bad because you're smothering it and crushing it because you're trying to hold on to this person and you're crushing the relationship rather than crushing it. You've got to hold the relationship in your hand and say, okay, I love you. I would like to see you be peaceful. And I'm here to encourage and support you in that peacefulness. But you have no expectations of them in terms of all these things that you want from them, all these things you desire from them. Because as long as you keep desiring and wanting things from people, that's coming from your own selfish desires, as opposed to, I would like you to be well. I would like to see you be peaceful. I would like to see you be content. And then through me supporting and encouraging you, then we're both, you know, enjoying this life together. It's not this selfish pursuit, but we're going to go into it a lot more detail in chapter 14. We have a related set of questions from Mika. How can I train my mind gradually to love anyone unconditionally? At the moment, I need some conditions to love someone. How do I eliminate this step by step? And what is the difference between love and lust according to a Buddhist perspective? Yeah, so if you want to improve this, you need to get on the path to enlightenment. It's not a matter of a five-minute answer and a checklist of checking one thing, you know, check this, check this, check this, check this. To evolve from this unenlightened mind that is misunderstanding love, that thinks that love is what it is, this selfish pursuit, this craving, desire, attachment, to transform that into what I call true love, it takes a while. It's a path. It's a life practice. And you need to fully learn and grow and train the mind in that direction. So there's no quick fixes to that. But the good news is that you've got somebody here that's willing to help you. All the resources that I have, the books, the audiobook, the podcast, the video, these classes, everything is offered openly and freely to everybody. And I share all of this with everybody. So if you are truly interested in moving from this unenlightened mind that doesn't quite understand how to practice true love to an enlightened mind practicing true love, you've got the help to do that. Because otherwise, your relationships are just going to keep struggling your whole life until you figure this out. And once you figure this out and you learn how to have true love and how to practice true love, it'll be the best thing ever because you'll no longer be crushing your relationships. And the interesting thing is, is that in there, every single one of you have true love. You truly love other people. But the problem is, is that this craving, desire, attachment is in the way. This pollution of the mind, these selfish desires are in the way. And you're making decisions based on what you think is good for the relationship. But when you really pull back the covers and you look underneath of this, there's selfish desires in there. There's these selfish craving, desire, attachments that are tainting your decisions. And it's causing complications in your life. 
but you truly have love for people. You're not a vindictive, you know, horrible person, so to speak. You've got this love in there, but it's being tainted and misunderstood because of this craving desire attachment that's polluting the mind. So it's on this path to enlightenment, learning all the teachings and training the mind that strips away this craving desire attachment. And now the true love can shine through and the person on the other side can feel it because they feel that true love. But when this craving desire attachment's there and you're making decisions based off of selfishness, just because you're misunderstanding love, you haven't done anything wrong, you're not a bad person, it's just your mind is unwise. You don't have the wisdom that you need to practice this true love. And when you're practicing this craving desire attachment that's kind of masquerading as love, the other person can feel that. And you can feel them being selfish too. And that's why there's all these complications in the relationship. But when you strip that away and now that true love comes shining through, wow, now you can have these wonderful relationships with everybody around you and you never experience hatefulness towards anybody because you're not trying to control them and tell them to do one thing or another. You're just allowing them to be who they are as a person and you're just there to support and encourage them. We have a question from Alan. Is Kama a focal point in wisdom? The natural law of Kama, or what the common people know of karma, this is kind of a more popular, it's just a different language, Sanskrit and versus Pali. But this natural law of Kama, this is the only word that I really use that's still in the old language because there's no one word translation. What Kama is, is it's this cause and effect or action and result. Essentially, the results of our decisions. If we kill other beings, we're going to have harm because we're harming other people. If we steal, we're causing harm to people, therefore we're going to have harm. If we have sexual misconduct, we're causing harm to people, therefore harm's going to come to us. If we're lying, harm's going to come to us because we're harming others. If we take substances that cause heedlessness, we're harming the physical body and the mind, so therefore harm is going to come to us. And we're more likely to do all these other things because our mind is clouded with this substance that causes heedlessness. So this natural law of gamma is part of the entire journey with the Buddhist teachings, is understanding this natural law where you can just see it clear as day. Because gravity, you know, you can you can see that, right? It's like, it's pretty clear. You can see it. And as you awaken to this wisdom of the natural law of gravity, you can see it. Well, the natural law of gamma is showing you that it's there all the time, but you're not aware of it. And because you're not aware of it, you don't see the results of it. As you start learning the teachings closer and closer and you realize when you start doing certain things, what's coming back to you, then you start being able to see it. So if people are being very aggressive and hostile and vindictive and talking bad to you in your life, like your life partner, your children, your siblings, your parents, this is probably because you've been doing exactly the same thing. What you're putting out is coming back to you. And the only way to improve is for you to improve the condition of your mind, not to go around and train everyone else. So this whole path, Alan, is all about the natural law of gamma, of understanding 
that there's this cause and effect or action and result, this a result of your decisions. Every single decision you make has certain consequences. So all of the Buddhist teachings are kind of balanced on what we call discernment or wise decision making. So all of these good, wholesome teachings are kind of balanced on you being able to make good decisions. This is why the Buddha never said, if this happens, do this. If this happens, do this. If this happens, do that. Because you can't get a permanent answer. If my partner cheats on me, do this. If my children do this, do that, right? Like it's not a rules. What the Buddha is doing is awakening you gradually to the natural law of gamma with this guidance. And as you learn this guidance and the natural law, then you will figure out the best decision because there's always 10 million right answers in any one given situation. And there's like a million wrong answers. The more wisdom you have of the natural law of gamma, the wiser decisions you will make. That's discernment, wise decision making. Biplab would like to know if you have anything to say about deeply concentrating to a single object. Um, not right now. We can talk about that two weeks from now when we get to right concentration, which is the eighth step of the Eightfold Path. That'll be part of the mental discipline. Thanks, David. Those are all the questions we have from Facebook and YouTube, so we'll shift over to Manal and Zoom. So, question from Michael. David, what if you're communicating with your partner, but they are still being angry and discontented towards you? Do you stand up for yourself, not tolerate it, and walk away? Wanted to know the Buddhist perspective on standing up and not tolerating when people are starting to take advantage of you. This is a beautiful question because of us just talking about non-self. And you heard in that language, right? Like stand up for yourself, right? That's the whole problem with the self. If the mind thinks there's a self there, which it does in the unenlightened state, then yeah, when someone's angry at you, you're going to want to stand up for yourself because of the self. You want to protect that self. If someone starts yelling and being angry at me, I'm not interested in having that conversation because nothing's getting through to that other person, right? There's occasions where if somebody's yelling now and upset with me or attacking me, I can sometimes kind of inject a little bit of wisdom. Like if it's my wife or something like that, every once in a while now she'll kind of have a, a little bit of, of aggressiveness, but not very much. And because I have compassion for her and all other beings, I'm interested where I can to kind of insert a little bit of wisdom to help them get over that. But there are some certain situations where it just doesn't even make sense to talk to the individual because nothing's getting through to them. There's no self here, so there's nothing to stand up for. But for you, if you have a self, yeah, you're going to want to stand up. You're going to want to have ego and you're going to sit there and bicker and fight and be hostile. And the longer you're bicker and hostile and you argue, they're just going to argue back. So this never gets extinguished. If you're going to extinguish this arguing with your life partner, when they argue, if you keep arguing back, it's like a rubber ball just bouncing around in the room and it's just going to go on and on and on for weeks and months and years. To extinguish it, if they're angry and hostile with you, if I suggest you just be quiet and say nothing or walk away. I had to do this for a good year and a half with my wife. As I was learning these teachings deeper and deeper, she would get so angry and frustrated about different things. 
but I knew this was my karma. This was the result of my decisions because in the past, when I would get upset or frustrated, that's what I did with her is I would yell and scream at her sometimes. And even though I was practicing these teachings closer and closer and closer, I had to experience the results of my decisions in the past, which was her yelling and hollering at me. So if I were to yell and holler back and argue back, it's not solving anything. It's just that rubber ball bouncing around. So sometimes I would stand there and listen and just let her get it all out. And then when she's done, I would say anything else or you done or sometimes I would just walk away or sometimes I would say nothing and I would just smile. Sometimes I would walk away. There's not just one permanent answer of what you do when somebody's yelling at you. There's not just one permanent answer. That's what the mind wants because it's craving permanence. It wants that permanent answer. David, what's the answer? What do I do when someone's yelling at me? There's like three, four, five, ten million right answers, right? There's only one wrong answer though here. One really big wrong answer. The wrong answer is yell back or argue back. Defend the self. That's the wrong answer. That's not going to fix the problem. The problem is that this person's mind is conditioned to think that yelling and hollering is going to solve the problem, but it's not. So you've got to have more wisdom, have that right intention of not causing harm. If you try to yell and argue back, you're causing harm to them. Therefore, you're going to keep getting yelling and hollering back. So you've got to figure out how to extinguish this and not try to change that person, but you've got to not yell back or not argue back or not defend the self because it's not going to lead to anywhere good. You should only be interested in having calm and peaceful and content conversations, but you're not going to be able to do that all the time with other people being calm and peaceful. You can improve your training where your mind is always calm, peaceful, and serene, you can get to that point, but you're gonna be in conversations, or like for me, like my wife, occasionally she still has a little bit of anger in there, and she will sometimes get frustrated, and it will come out occasionally. But the wrong answer is for me to yell back, so I can't even remember the last time that I raised my voice back to her or yelled back at her, And because of that, because I'm no longer doing that to her, I'm no longer harming her, her yelling is going down and down and down and down where it's almost non-existent now. Where before it was like every other day because I was doing it too. But now when I don't do it anymore, she can see it's her. She's the problem and she sees it and she knows it and she's working on it. But as long as you're yelling back, then you're both the problem. So you've got to get to a point where you're no longer trying to defend the self and you can just be peaceful and calm and just either walk away or be quiet or smile or what have you. Right, David. It appears that's all the questions we have for now. Okay. Well, I'll just end by saying thank you for joining for today's class. This is a really meaty topic and that's why class you know, went a little bit longer today, but I appreciate all your questions. I appreciate your dedication and commitment to learning and practicing, growing along this path. This is the reason why we are taking this slow and progressing by doing just three classes solely dedicated to the Eightfold Path because normally this whole Eightfold Path I talk about in one session. 
But today, the next Sunday and the next Sunday, we're going to really slow down and make sure we really soak into each individual part of the Eightfold Path. So next Sunday, we're going to be talking about right speech, right action, and right livelihood. This is the moral conduct. And we're going to be talking about the harms that we cause with our speech, our action, and our livelihoods. And by cleaning that up and no longer doing those things, then you'll see better results of what's coming back to you. So that's what we're going to be doing next Sunday. This Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. So you can join at nine o'clock Thai time, either on Zoom, YouTube, or Facebook. And we're going to be doing meditation where I'm going to take some time to really teach you proper breathing mindfulness meditation and how to actually do a proper meditation session so that you can now integrate this into your life where each day you're meditating and gradually training the mind more and more to let go of this craving desire attachment and build awareness of mind. And this is a primary aspect of this path is to make sure you're setting aside time to learn and practice really good quality meditation. So that's what we're going to focus on on Wednesday. And then every Wednesday, we'll be doing meditation every single Wednesday. But the idea is that you need to be doing that every day on your own as well. But I'm going to help build you up on Wednesday with that content. So have a really lovely rest of your day. Enjoy your Sunday wherever you are, however much longer you have in your Sunday. And I'll see you either on Wednesday on next Sunday, which would be the group learning program. And then we also have a program on Saturday too, which is kind of more of an intermediate level program, which if you're just starting the group learning program, I would say just stick with this. But if you want to pop into that one, you're welcome to come check it out. In that program, we're learning with these books, which is a 13 book series called Buddha Wajana. This is the words of the Buddha. There's 13 books and it's solely the words of the Buddha where people who've been studying for about six months or a year in the group learning program, they will then start studying on the Saturday program as well. So if you're just starting to get your arms around the path to enlightenment, I would say just stick with Sunday and Wednesday. But if you've been learning and practicing for a while and you want to really get into some more depth or you feel like you have more time because maybe you're not working or you don't have as many obligations and you'd like to take on some more content, then you're always welcome to attend Saturday's class as well. Same thing in Zoom, Facebook, and YouTube. So either Sunday, Wednesday, or Saturday, I'll see you then. Have a really wonderful rest of your day and take care. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.